on Andrew's last point, uh, hopefully sharing the gospel, being intentional about that is something that's on the forefront for all of us, that uh, that's one of the reasons God leaves us on the earth after our own salvation is to communicate that same saving message to others. And with that, let me pray and then we'll get into scripture. Lord, thanks for loving us enough to send Christ to die for our sins so that through that proffer, that offer of forgiveness, we can have sins forgiven, we receive eternal life, we become your children. Not only now, Lord, the gift of your spirit, but we have eternity to look forward with you in your presence forever. And thanks so much for that. Would you, would you burden us in, in the right ways to value and love life as you do and certainly uh, be about your business in sharing that hope with the folks we run into. Help us to look for and see those opportunities in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, a couple years ago, 2019, there was a case that had gone to the Kansas Supreme Court. And through that case, the Kansas Supreme Court ruled that the Kansas Constitution uh, included within it the right to abortion. Um, it basically uh, said that government could not constrain by any kind of legislation on a person's personal autonomy. It, it goes beyond abortion, but it certainly included that. That was, the, that was the foundation of the case. In August, so a year from now, August of 22, there's a primary election that includes an amendment to the Kansas Constitution following on that decision called Value Them Both, and all it would do is return abortion to the same legal standing it had before the court made that ruling, which is only to say that Kansas can legislate, can do something legislatively regarding abortion. The Value Them Both constitutional amendment reads this in part. It's, it's quite short. It says, in part, the Constitution of the state of Kansas does not require government funding of abortion and does not create or secure a right to abortion. To the extent permitted by the United States Constitution, the people, through their elected state representatives and state senators, may pass laws regarding abortion. So, if the if this, the Supreme Court's ruling on abortion, if Roe v. Wade was overturned tomorrow, it would make no difference in the state of Kansas. So this would only return to Kansas the ability to legislate abortion like anything else would be legislated. It doesn't do anything new. It would simply return us to where we were. I hope that next year in August, I hope you'll vote in the primary election. We think as a church leadership, as a church body, that voting is simply one of the ways in which we try to be good neighbors to others around us by voting for and supporting people and policies that we think make sense for the good and the welfare of the folks that we call neighbors. And also, I hope that you would vote for that amendment as well. This church unapologetically is pro-life, and, th and that means that we not only support pro-life legislation, we not only have had volunteers over the years in local pro-life demonstrations and outreaches, we support as a church monthly and financially local and national pro-life groups, and we do all of that because we believe God values life. God loves human life. God values life. And because God does, we mean to do the same thing as well. 
And guys, we live in a pro-death culture. The culture that you and I inhabit today is not generally pro-life, it's pro-death. And you see that in numerous, numerous ways. And what we'll be talking about this morning, uh, frankly, as I've gone through this, I want to talk, I hope the emphasis you come away with is God loves and values life, and so we should too. And what does that look like? But as we go through the text that we'll be looking at this morning out of Deuteronomy, death comes up because God was confronting in Israel among his own covenant people this whole notion that we tend towards death and things that produce death. And so the God who loves life legislated within Israel certain kinds of things because he loved life and wanted to promote life within his own covenant people. So in this world that loves death, when you talk about life, you inevitably talk about life's opposite, death as well. So I think you'll find this message this morning uh, thoughtful, I hope not depressing. I hope that we come away exhorted or with our vision firmly centered on loving and valuing who and what God loves and values. 1,400 years before Jesus' incarnation, God stipulated in the law some of the ways in which his people were to value and protect and care for life. Of course, God's ultimate demonstration of his love and his value for us and our neighbors and our relatives and people across the street and across the globe, God has not only told us verbally that he loves us, but in Jesus' incarnation when God the Son takes on our flesh so that he can be our substitute, it was to produce life. God loved us. Jesus came to die for us so that God could give us life. That's sort of, that's the undercurrent. It's the foundation, really, of every Christian life and of any gospel proclamation. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy 21, verses 1 through 9. This is a rather obscure passage you probably have never heard taught on before. <clears throat> Excuse me, this is the 17th message in the Mercy Waiting Lessons in Deuteronomy series. And this morning, you really see God's mercy displayed to Israel through his protection of life. Protection of life. Deuteronomy 21, 1 through 9. Uh, starting there, Moses, remember, writing to Israel just before they go into the land of promise, 40 years after the Exodus account. Moses wrote in part this. If in the land that the Lord your God has given you to possess... Someone is found slain, so someone has been murdered, lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed him. Then your elders and your judges shall come out, and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked and that is not pulled in a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall testify... Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. 
Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord." So you got this occasion where someone out in the country has been murdered and we don't know who the murderer is. You cannot bring justice to bear on the person who's committed the murder, since we don't know it, but God still says a form of atonement was still required. He attributed guilt to the people of the land for the murder of an innocent person, and he calls it the guilt of innocent blood. So God loves life, he values life, a person has been slain, we don't know who did it, God still says this wrong must be atoned for. In fact, he says by way of sacrifice they were purging or cleansing the land and the people from the guilt of the innocent blood. The sacrifice here is a little unusual. A heifer, a young cow has been brought. You know, here there's no blood. You know, typically with almost every other sacrifice, an animal's neck would be slit, the blood would be drained out. But here the heifer, a sacrifice, a substitute is brought, and it's slain in this area in which nothing else is going on. It's a little bit like a typical sacrifice in that a place specifically set aside for sacrifice was made and an animal was slain to atone for this sin. So God required the same thing for a murder where the murderer was not known. He still said this slain of innocent blood brought about a kind of spiritual lack of purity, impurity, uncleanness, guilt on the land and the people, and so atonement was required. If you look at Numbers, or you don't need to turn there, but Numbers 35, 33 says effectively the same thing. We read there, you shall not, and here he calls it pollute, You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And here it's not that I was cut and I dripped blood into the soil and somehow that was unclean, but it was the thought that murder, the taking of an innocent life, was a pollution to the land itself, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it except by the blood of the one who shed it. In the situation that we read of initially, you don't know who that one is, and so that one, justice is not brought to bear on him, but a sacrificial animal is substituted for him. That concept of murder defiling a place and sort of calling out for justice, that goes all the way back to Genesis 4. So if you remember the first act of murder on the earth that's at least recorded in Scripture was fratricide. It was one brother slain, killing another brother. So when God came to Cain and he said, hey, where's your brother, Abel? And Cain says famously, you know, I'm not my brother's keeper. You know, I don't know where he is. You take care of that. And God says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Your murder, that act of taking the life of someone God loved and valued is like a cry out of the ground itself that the very place in which you murdered your brother is almost, as it were, crying out for justice. 
So this is that same thing in the law. It's the same thing you saw with Cain and Abel. It's brought back up again in the law through Moses. So the guilt of murder was understood to bring a special or particular kind of spiritual pollution to the place and the people in which that occurred. God values life and an innocent life being taken away by another was seen as a gross sin that brought harm to everyone around it. Now, if you turn to Deuteronomy 19, go back a chapter or two, <clears throat> excuse me, because God loved and valued life, he set guards and protections in the law to preserve innocent life. This is one, one example of that. In Deuteronomy 19, verses 1 through 3, God required that what he called cities of refuge be established in the land. Initially, then three more were going to be established later. But when Israel went in initially, he required that at least three cities be set aside as cities of refuge, and they were to be spread out through the geography of Israel so that they were not any further removed from any individual in the land of promise than was absolutely necessary so that everyone could get there as readily as possible. In verse 4 there, Deuteronomy 19.4, this is the way that city of refuge would have been used. Here's the example. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him, because the way is long, and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die, since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Verse 10 lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, and so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. So in this situation, you remember back in the day, um, if your family member was slain, was murdered, this was the day and the time in which it was still typical that another family member would take vengeance, would procure justice, by slaying the one who had murdered your relative. So in this situation, it's not murder. It's probably what we would call legally manslaughter. Through, through no intention, through an accident, one person has effectively killed another. They're afraid. Let's just say Joe, I accidentally killed Joe in the woods. Joe's brother John is going to hear about this. And he's going to think I intended it, and he's going to come for me. So I flee to a city of refuge, and while I'm there, I'm under the city's protection. The relative can still come, and my case could be heard, but I would be protected from this instant anger, this desire for vengeance from someone who didn't, in fact, know what had happened, or perhaps still knew and was still angry and still wanted to exact revenge on someone that God said would, in fact, be the shedding of innocent blood. That person, the manslayer in this case, manslaughter, was not to be punished through the loss of life. So the provision was to save life when what otherwise might happen is that family member would come and take the life as an act of vengeance. The retaliation for manslaughter was considered the shedding of innocent blood. 
So cities of refuge were one of the ways God was protecting the lives of the innocent. If you go down to verse 11 there, Deuteronomy 19.11, But if anyone hates his neighbor, so this is a different situation, and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies, and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eye shall not pity him. You shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. So in the case of an accidental death, the city of refuge is that place that allows the person to maintain their life. His case would be heard, he would be vindicated, and he couldn't be, his life couldn't be taken. In the case of someone guilty for murder, he flees to the city of refuge. The city of refuge would not protect him from the death penalty. It wouldn't, couldn't be used in that way. You guys know the death penalty is a penalty that's tough to reverse, right? Once it's occurred, there's no going back, right? So God had a protection for that too in the law. This is Deuteronomy 17.6. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. You could not legally in Israel execute anyone without two or three witnesses. And again, if I'm upset with a neighbor and I want to get rid of someone or seize his land or whatever, if I'm free as an individual to bring about the death of another, it's fair game on everyone within the community. So God said you cannot bring about the death penalty unless there are two or three witnesses to validate the charge. See the same thing in Deuteronomy 19.15, and this is more broad than death only. He says there, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now, you know, if you read the story of Jezebel and Naboth and his vineyard, you'll know that you could still, through a conspiracy, you could murder an innocent person. That's an example of that. But that's where a number of people have conspired together to form a group to bring about a murder. But it had to be a conspiracy or it wouldn't work. An individual could not bring about the unjust execution of another individual. God provided that protection. Uh, if you turn to Deuteronomy 22.8, this is a bit more mundane and generic, but it goes to the same value that God loved life, valued life, and meant for his people to do the same. So in Deuteronomy 22.8, God required this. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet, a short retaining wall, for your roof, and listen to the language again, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. That you not bring the guilt of blood upon your house. The Jews made what were called four-room homes. They were stone. They typically would have had a, a mortar or lime-type uh, plaster inside, but they were low-slope roofs. And so most of those households, the roof was effectively part of the house functionally. So if there was a breeze on a hot day, you'd go up on your roof, 
If you wanted to dry your laundry, in fact, if you think of the story of the spies and Jericho, they're on a rooftop where Rahab is drying something from the field. I don't remember what it was. But roofs were functional parts of those homes. So God says even to the point of the construction of your house, he required a parapet, and it was a way of making sure no one accidentally fell off a roof. We would say this was a building code today. Right? Yeah. Anybody, if you do anything on construction, you know, everything's about the building codes. But if you think of that, too, building codes are about preserving life and health. It's the same thought. But you saw that in the code God gave through Moses as well. And now here's a little one, Exodus 21, 28 through 29. Here's another example of the kind of care God required in his covenant community. So here's an example. An ox gores a man or a woman to death. You must stone the ox, but you don't eat it. The owner's not liable. You know, an ox is a big cow, and it's got horns, and it can hurt you. And so an ox has gotten loose, and somehow, and it's killed someone. It's not happened before. The owner's not liable, but the ox will be put to death. But, verse 29, if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past... And its owner has been warned, but he's not kept it in. And then it kills a man or a woman. The ox shall be stoned, and the owner shall be put to death. Here's a situation in which the owner of a dangerous animal knows it's a dangerous animal, knows it can harm someone else or kill them. They forfeited their own life because they refused to provide prudent care for their neighbors through constraining the danger that was under their hand or under their control. We had a situation in our neighborhood not long ago in which one of our neighbors was attacked, blindsided by a vicious dog in our neighborhood. The dog was known to be vicious. The dog had bitten other neighbors. One, one of our neighbors is suing the other one of our neighbors for damages. The neighbor was responsible for their animal. It was known to be a vicious dog. It had aggressively attacked other people, and it wasn't constrained. It's like that, that I'm responsible for what I have in my control that could adversely affect you. So God was making sure that these are just a couple of examples, but that you were caring for the life of your neighbor, that God valued the lives of your neighbors, and you should too. You should take proactive care for the, the good and the welfare of your neighbors. Uh, if you think today uh, codes require, if I'm in the city and I build a swimming pool, I have a fence around my swimming pool. Why is that? Well, so that your toddler can't come into my backyard and accidentally drown. And again, to building codes today, the same thought is there. You're just trying to make sure that everyone is appropriately cared for, that someone can't be hurt or their death can't be brought about unintentionally. Or unnecessarily. Um, you can talk to lots of people. So we're talking about life. God loves and values life on one hand. And yet in that context, we're saying, and, and God required the death penalty for situations where someone intentionally took the life of another person or through a lack of adequate care, someone else died because they didn't take care. You're talking about the death penalty. There are a lot of people, religious people, uh, people of Christian faith who say that to take the life of anyone uh, is wrong, is morally wrong. 
And especially in this situation, if you think just of the death penalty, and that's just an impossible argument to make biblically. So when you talk about the penalty of death for the preservation of life, you're not talking about something that men created, but that God required. This goes all the way back to Genesis 9, verse 5. And it comes about at an interesting time. You remember Genesis 6, God looks at the world and he says, you know what, this is one violent place. Men's hearts have corrupted crazy. The, the world is filled with violence and murder. And what does God do? God slays. God ends every life on the earth except Noah and his family in an ark. And as that story's winding down in Genesis 9-5, not only do you have this great story about the rainbow, is God's promise, it's the symbol of God's promise never to destroy the earth again, life on the earth again, through flood. But you've also got this, Genesis 9-5, God speaking to Noah, he says, For your lifeblood, your life, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. So that situation where the ox has gored someone to death, the ox is slain. That's Genesis 9.5. He goes on and says, And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made him in his own image. You know, ultimately we say we value life because life is created in the image of God. Every other person you ever meet is an image bearer of God. They share God's image. They have inherent worth and value. And so in Genesis 9, God said that the, the value he sets on any individual life is so high that if I willingly steal someone else's life through murder, I have forfeited my own. It's a justice issue, but it's also a preservation of life issue. It's both. That is affirmed, by the way, in Romans 13. So before the law of Moses, it's God who institutes the death penalty for murder. It's not an idea that men came up with. That was God. You see it reiterated in the law of Moses, again, to preserve life. And you see it again in Romans 13, verses 3 through 5. Paul there speaks of kings and their representatives of government officials, and he says they are God's servants, they are God's ministers, and they're ministers for good. But he says this, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Remember, the sword is the symbol of both justice and death. He, the, the government, the representative, the king, he is the servant of God. He is an avenger. And just go back to the language out of the law, the one who takes vengeance on murder. He is an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's a lot more that could be said about the death penalty. There's a message from, I think it's eight years ago, in the Ten Words series. It was a study on the Ten Commandments under Don't Murder. You can hear a lot more about that, and there's a lot more information there if you care to follow that up but it's about both justice and the preservation of life. So God loves and values life, and in valuing and loving life and preserving life, one of the ways he's done that is through death. He's used death, the execution, death penalty, as a means of preserving life 
not only sustaining justice. And I want to mention in that context this. We sometimes um, fix our eyes on life on the earth as if life on the earth is the ultimate or the highest good. And it's not. And it can't be. So unless Jesus calls first, what happens to everyone in this room? We die. Just like everyone in the generations before us, we die. If our goal is merely to sustain life on the earth, it's going to be short-circuited every time because we're all going to die. So eternity is the bigger issue, not time on the earth. Eternity is the bigger issue. And the highest good is our personal reconciliation with the God who created us in his image. So the most important thing for any of us is not temporal life, it's eternal life. Absolutely. Listen to this. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26, What does it profit a man if he gains the world and forfeits his soul? If you and I live to be 100 and our life is splendid, it's a dream come true, there's no downside, then we die. You could have had a lovely life and now you have eternity. And what's your eternity? That's the bigger issue. If you live to 1,000 or 100,000 years and you have nothing but pleasure in your life and then you die and you die without Christ, what's your eternity? It's still the bigger issue. So simply the preservation of life on earth is not a high enough goal. And God's love and his value for us certainly goes beyond mere life on the earth. But consider this. This is from Revelation 14, 13. This is in the context of this future time of great tribulation that's still prophesied. God says it's coming on all the earth. And it'll be a very tough time for anyone. It'll be a particularly tough time if you're a believer and a follower of Jesus. But listen to what the text says. John writes, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, they're not cursed. They, they don't have a second-rate life because it was cut short. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, their labors on earth are over, for their deeds follow them. God will reward them for their faithfulness. In this time, this future time to yet come in human history, those who die early as martyrs, and guys in the text it says the number of martyrs in this time that's still coming up, they're uncountable. There are too many to count. Those are people God loves and values, but he calls them blessed in their early death in martyrdom because they are going into God's very presence. And that's the exact same message you see from Paul in Philippians 1 when he says, I'm hard-pressed and I'm not sure what my future is. He says, I would rather, all things considered, I would rather depart, die, and go be with Christ, which he says is far better than life on the earth. And he had a rich and full and very difficult also life. But he said, nope, to die would be far better. So we want to make sure that as we're, as we're taking into account the big picture of God's love for life and value for life, we want to be careful for each other's health and welfare in our short time on the earth, absolutely. But this is not the highest goal. It cannot be the highest good because we are not finite creatures whose lives end when life on the earth for us ends. That's the beginning. You know, our death is just the beginning of eternity. 
Christians have now, presently, eternal life, life that goes on to the ages, we don't feel necessarily the benefit of that will when we see Jesus face to face. That's the bigger thing. So we love life, we value life here and now because God does, but we remember for ourselves or for others that eternal life is the real issue. That's why we always want to be about the gospel. Uh, If you read Israel's history, and you know this, if we ask, how did Israel do, not just with the covenant, with the law broadly, but how did they do at loving and valuing life because God did? How'd that work out for them? If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings 21. 2 Kings 21, verse 16. Manasseh was the worst, most wicked king in all the history of Judah. Israel had no good kings. Judah had several. Manasseh was not one of them. He was the most wicked king in Judah's history. This is what we read of Manasseh in part. Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides the sins that he made Judah sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Manasseh was responsible for so much death, death of innocent blood, God says he filled Jerusalem with the death of the innocents. Now if you turn a page or two in your Bibles to 2 Kings 24, verses 3 through 4, you remember God has said in the law, that the guilt of innocent blood must be atoned for. There's a real guilt there. Well, in 2 Kings 24, the context is, God's quite clear about this, God is sending enemies of Judah against Judah. After Manasseh, it's four kings and 30 years after Manasseh. It's in the reign of Jehoiakim. It's the last 20 years before Judah's captivity. But listen to what God says. This came upon Judah, the enemies coming in to harass Judah. This came upon Judah at the command of the Lord. This wasn't an accident. To remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh. If you say, why did God bring Judah into Babylonian captivity? There are multiple reasons, but this text says one of the key reasons was the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done for the innocent blood that he had shed for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord would not pardon. The guilt of the innocent blood had not been atoned for and God said, I'm not pardoning this. I'm not overlooking this. You see the same thing in Jeremiah 19.4. Remember Jeremiah goes through the destruction of Jerusalem and the captivity And Jeremiah 19 is a passage in which God's articulating the judgment that he's going to bring upon his covenant people. And he reads in part, The people have forsaken me, they've profaned this place, by making offerings in it to other gods, so there's idolatry, whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocents that they're going into captivity. I'm not overlooking this because of the blood of the innocents. Not just the idolatry vertically, but for the lack of appropriate value and love and care horizontally for other humans created in God's image. So you read in the Old Testament, it's clear they did not do well on loving and valuing the life as God did. Now if you ask, how have we moderns done 
at embracing the mercy that's reflected in the law that God meant to for his covenant people to love and value and preserve life in that covenant community. How, how have we done as moderns? So, you know, if you look at the world that we occupy today, the advances in science and technology, they're ridiculous, aren't they? It's crazy. Have we progressed morally like we have technologically? We haven't. In fact, what you see is that we aren't better. <laughs> I love the phrase in, uh, when Elijah flees from the Lord, he says, I'm not better than my father's. I've got a vision of myself. I've seen something about my own culpability. I'm not better than my fathers. Well, friends, our culture is not better than our forebears. And humanity is degrading over time. We're not going up. We're going down. And so if you look at Israel's history and you say, man, did they blow it, uh, we should be crying over the lack of the value and the love for life that's displayed in the world you and I live in today. So I don't mean this to be depressing, but let me just give you a few facts. It's, it's uh, stern at least. It's sobering. When we talk about pro-life, we almost always think of the United States because this is where we live, and I, and I understand that. But, but life's a planet, a world issue. It's not just a United States issue. In the modern age, we know without doubt that at least hundreds of millions of unborn children have been killed by abortion. There's no doubt about this. One estimate, numberofabortions.com, estimates by extrapolating the data we do have that since 1980, there have been 1.5 billion abortions worldwide. Was it Stalin or Hitler that said one death's a tragedy, a million is a statistic? Guys, you can't, you can't get your mind around this. 1.5 billion people? Something close to that? Hundreds of millions of children that have never seen the light of day because they were killed while still in the womb. Murder, <clears throat> excuse me, on world data, uh, almost half a million murders a year around the world. Uh, government purges, uh, you know, as longer, the longer culture goes, uh, we tend to embrace more fully socialism, and socialism often leads to communism. You remember the pro promise of communism was utopia. You, you, you remember that? Philosophically, communism says there's no God, but we can make a version of heaven on earth. We can do this together. That's what the, that was the, the promise of communism. But if you look back from 1900 to 2000, a communism as a philosophy and a concept and a government structure is responsible for more murders, intentional murders. There's nothing that compares with it in the history of the world. No invading army, no, no king, no other form of government can claim anything close to the intentional murders under communism, under a Christ-denying, God-denying form of government that does not love and value life as God does. So if you look only at Russia and China, you know, this, the data on this is hard to get because governments, they don't keep great track of how many people they murder. But one of the, one of the estimates in Russia was at least 20 million and in China, 50 million under Mao. That's under communist regimes. How have we done in the modern age? Well, we have murdered millions and millions of our fellow image bearers. 
Guys, in wars, we know soldiers die in war. Soldiers die in war. If I sign up to be a soldier, I know I'm putting my life on the line. But innocent civilians die through warfare as well. It's estimated that in the last century, about 86 million non-combatants died in war. In fact, just recently in Syria, in the last 8 to 10 years in Syria, it's estimated that a quarter million people have died. These are non-combatants have died because of the warfare in Syria. And last, this doesn't measure up in any way, numerically, but unjust executions, whether it's here or around the world. Think just of here. Uh, I assume that the number is small. And, and by saying that, I don't mean to minimize it. But every once in a while, do you remember reading an article that will say the guy sitting on death row for 10 years was just exonerated? That DNA evidence came out and they found out this guy wasn't the murderer, someone else was. Or a guy's on death row and another guy says... For one reason or another, actually, I killed that person. And here this person was going to be executed. We know from people that have been exonerated, we assume, others have died. And guys, you know, if we had the same rule that God commanded Israel, that wouldn't happen unless there was a conspiracy. It couldn't happen because without the evidence, the testimony of two or three witnesses, you couldn't put someone to death. So if we look at Israel and say, man, you guys blew it, you didn't love life, you didn't value life the way God does, we've, we have blown that out of the water, uh, modern man. We have not improved across the world, the globe today. We have not loved and valued life as God does. Life is a precious thing God means for us to nurture and protect. Think of this. If the blood of the innocent pollutes the land, if the taking of innocent lives cries out for justice, what must be the cry from the earth today for justice from the shedding of innocent blood? It must be horrendous, just horrendous. Practically, uh, children are not commodities, right? You know, if I think I can just throw a child away, that child's a commodity. It's not an image bearer. Children are image bearers. God means for us to love and value them. God means for us to love and value our neighbors. And guys, whether it's I'm, I'm careful about my home is safe for you to come or my pet is safe for you to be around. I mean, there'd be little things along this line. The biggest thing for us, knowing that time on the earth is short and knowing that God loves and values life, The biggest thing for us to do is, of course, to communicate the gospel to those around us. You know, in that first example in Deuteronomy, the heifer was slain as a substitute for the guilty party. And we know, of course, that Jesus has become that singular sacrifice whose blood, whose willing death on the cross is the satisfaction, is the atonement for all the innocent blood that's shed. And for any sin you and I commit, and the greatest thing we can do to value life as God does and love the lives of those fellow image bearers just like us is to communicate the gospel to them. Because life on the earth is short, eternity is a long time. God loves life. God values life. He has saved us. He's given us eternal life through his Son. And we want to share that same message of hope and life 
with fellow image bearers just like us who just like us have an eternity coming as well. So God values life and loves life, and we should too. Would you rise with me? And I want to close by reading together from John 3, 16, you know. We'll read 17 as well. This is the value God puts on life, and this is the value we want to put on the lives of those around us. Read with me, please. For God so loved the world that he gave his only 